states, for example, such as Texas or Oklahoma, want to have their abortion restrictions or prohibitions set in place. But the Biden administration has been openly in saying, no, we, we're okay with California mailing these drugs into your states to undermine any type of protections you have for women and girls and unborn life. So we can't fully achieve the promise of Dobbs until we scale back the mail order regime that the Biden administration has pushed. Outstanding is a production of The Washington Stand, where you can find news and commentary from a biblical worldview. Welcome to Outstanding. I'm your host, Joseph Backholm. Recent analysis concluded that there were 32,000 fewer abortions in the U.S. in the six months following the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe versus Wade and left the question of abortion to the legislative branches of our government. Now, abortion was immediately illegal in some states after Dobbs, thanks to trigger laws that were in effect in those states. In conservative states, legislatures took action to protect life, while there were several blue states where abortion advocates took steps to make abortion much more accessible, including the state of California, which actually offered to pay for the travel expenses of women who wanted to go to California to get their abortion. So, of course, states responded very differently. Now, while it's wonderful, of course, that 32,000 babies who would have been aborted were not, that decline represented only a 6% decline in the total number of abortions. Even prior to the Dobbs decision, chemical abortion was the leading cause of abortion in the United States. And chemical abortions, of course, are caused by pills, the most common of which is called mifepristone, And mifepristone is also now the subject of litigation. And recently, a federal judge ruled that the process for bringing mifepristone to the market back in the year 2000 happened during the Clinton administration, the process, that that process was illegal. Now, is that drug dangerous? Why is this lawsuit happening now, 20 years after it's been on the market? Is it going to end chemical abortions in America? Here to have this conversation and help us answer some of these questions is a doctor who's part of the lawsuit challenging the approval of mifepristone. Dr. Donna Harrison is the past CEO of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists called APLOG. She now serves as their director of research. APLOG is one of four medical associations filing a lawsuit that we will discuss today. Also joining us is her attorney, Eric Baptist, who's a senior counsel at the Alliance Defending Freedom. Dr. Harrison and Eric, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Joseph, for having me. Thank you for having us. Well, we are so glad to have you. And Dr. Harrison, I'm going to start with you um, as we get going here. What? Tell me a little bit about your background, how you got to be in a place where you are filing lawsuits, challenging the uh, authorization of abortion drugs. Well, I'm a board-certified OBGYN, and just to clarify, my current role is actually as chairman of the board of the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine. So as an OBGYN, I was intimately uh, familiar with the uh, abortion debate and also with the consequences that I saw in my patients. Abortion hurts women. But that's not the reason that we are filing it, you know, the lawsuit at this time. What we see is chemical abortion hurts women. It's not just surgical abortion. Chemical abortion hurts women, and it hurts them in many different ways. 
mostly having to do with the safety or the unsafeness of the way in which chemical abortion is performed and the uh, lack of oversight, physician oversight, which makes it currently a very dangerous drug for women to use. And we're going to get into that and some of the details of that, but I also want to kind of get to the headlines because in in litigation, it's unusual for things to move quickly, but it seems in this case, litigation is moving quickly. And Eric, I want to ask you to to start the legal side of this conversation. Uh, First, what was your reaction when you learned that there were medical associations that wanted to file a lawsuit to challenge the authorization of a drug that had already been on the market for 20 years? Well, when I looked at the facts and seen what Applog has been doing for the last two decades, I was encouraged to see that they had been checking the box along the way to help bring a lawsuit forward. And it was only by FDA's recent decisions that they could actually come to court because there's a weird nuance in the law that requires, at least the FDA requires, before you can sue them over a new drug approval, you have to go to the FDA first and submit something called a citizen petition. And that is exactly what Applog did back in the year 2002, and the FDA proceeded to stonewall our clients for 14 years. And on that same day, they rejected that petition. They changed the regimen around, forcing our clients yet to file a new petition challenging that uh, change to the regimen. And finally, the FDA stonewalled them for another two and a half years to reject them. And then we filed that lawsuit shortly thereafter. So I'm finally happy that we can present our clients' claims and challenges to the FDA's approval after all these years. They would have loved to sue the FDA two decades ago, but the FDA was trying to evade judicial review. And so now we can finally have our day in court, put the FDA on trial for everything that is done to harm women and girls due to these drugs. And that's an interesting fact in this story, because at first blush, if you read the headline and say, hey, these people have sued to uh, overturn the approval of a drug that was been on the market since 2000, there's kind of like this sense that, well, you know, what have you been waiting for? Is this just a new strategy? Because of course you hate abortion and we do hate abortion, but it's it's not the sense that we've just been waiting for 20 years and this is a new creative, you know, sink that we can throw at the proverbial wall to see if it sticks. They've actually been trying to do this since essentially it was approved in the first place, yes? That's exactly That's- right. And some people say, oh, that you were waiting for the Dobbs decision to come down or wait for the fall of Roe v. Wade. No, we weren't. We Our clients would have gone much sooner. It was to the FDA's own detriment that that, that Dobbs came down and now we are in okay. litigation. Not to say that Roe v. Wade would have had any sway over this case, but at the same time, the timing was is because the FDA was the own, their own worst enemy here, stonewalling our clients for upwards of 16, 17 years. Dr. Harrison, how... How long have you been part of this litigation and this effort? Well, I think the litigation was filed just last year, but I have been involved with uh, studying the approval of Mifeprex since since Planned Parenthood Population Council first filed a new drug application back in 1996. So I've been following this approval and was one of the authors of the original citizen petition 100 pages, 500 references, clearly documenting the concerns that we had about how this drug would harm women, which is hemorrhage, infection, retained tissue. And the conditions under which the FDA approved the drug are even more lax now than they were back in 2000. So it's even more dangerous for women now. And that's, so I've been involved since the beginning. Now, it's my understanding that, uh, 
for several years prior to Dobbs, which overturned Roe versus Wade, chemical abortions have been the most common form of abortion in America. And I think that number is somewhere north of 50%. And correct me if I'm I'm wrong on that. Um, but I think that's been the, the situation for a while. That means millions of women every year take this drug in the United States and presumably around the world. If it's that common, how can there be risks as serious as the ones that you are referring to? Because nobody is tracking. When the FDA originally approved the drug, they required the manufacturer, that is Danco, to submit adverse event reports to the FDA. Well, where is the manufacturer going to get that information? Going to get it from the abortionists. And how are the abortionists going to get that information? Because they are not the ones who primarily take care of women with complications. We know from studying the adverse event reports back in uh, up through 2019, that most of the complications were actually handled in the emergency room, at least most of the reported complications. So we have a situation where complications are only reported by the abortionists and they were only reported to Danco, who then decides what information the FDA is going to have. You can see the, la the conflict of interest possibilities. Now, in addition to that, in 2016, when the FDA changed their requirements, they also said, you don't have to report complications anymore, only if the woman dies. Well, I can tell you from reviewing the uh, FDA adverse event reports that several of the abortionists reported deaths only because they saw them in the paper. Now, this is, this is obscene data collection. This is, this is uh, unbelievably poor data collection. It's almost like they don't want to know. So how can you how can you know the implications of changing a drug regimen like they did in 2016 if you're no longer going to track complications? Dr. It's, Harrison, it, yeah, you say there it's almost like they don't want to know, and you're a bit wry when you say that. Is it your belief that they, in fact, do not want to know, which is why they don't ask the questions? Well, there are ways to track complications. And the FDA could have sent out information to emergency room doctors to tell them we need complications reported. They didn't. They didn't solicit complications. And, and it, just from common sense, from other drug uh, uh, incidents, when you don't have an active surveillance, that is, you're seeking complications, when you use passive surveillance, you only get a fraction of the complications because people that handle the complications don't even know to report to the FDA. Now, Eric, as you listen to this part of the conversation, from a legal perspective, I mean, is this just a function of the entire industry or the federal government just trying to maintain plausible deniability? Where it's like, that's information that we don't want to know. We really like abortion. We want to make it as, as easy to get as possible. If you have information that suggests what we're doing to facilitate abortion is dangerous to people, just don't tell us. Is that what's happening here? Well, it's even worse than that. It's not that just they don't want to know, but they don't want to actually track meaningful this meaningful data. And that's important because in 2016, they got rid of that reporting requirement or any meaningful reporting requirement. And then in 2021, they said, well, because we're not seeing many adverse events being reported to us, we're going to make further changes. So that is just simply audacious, reckless, and frankly, illegal. But that's exactly what they did. And two courts have taken them to task for such yeah. an approach where they're an ostrich with the head in its sand. And that's not appropriate. Yeah. 
It's like I, I haven't heard uh, any problems from I haven't seen my children in five years, but because I haven't heard that they've anything bad has happened for them in the last five years, I'm going to assume that everything is wonderful. And the fact is, that, yeah, I mean, you just made the analogy of burying your head in the sand. That does seem uh, to be exactly what's what's happening there. Now, Dr. Harrison, um, as to the health risks associated with mifepristone, what do you think are the most serious? Well, let me go through how it works and then it'll explain why these are serious. So mifepristone works by causing a hormone called progesterone that the woman's body makes by causing that hormone not to work. The progesterone is what allows the woman's body to feed the baby. So mifepristone interferes with progesterone. The good news in all that is that if you give progesterone um, after taking mifeprex within 72 hours, you can sometimes increase the chances of survival for the baby. But if you have the mifepristone, it will cause the baby to die, but it won't cause the baby to be expelled. So you need to take a second drug, mesoprostol, cytotec, which causes the womb to contract. But this, this works probably yeah, about 95% of the time, which means one out of 20 women who are early, early in the pregnancy, seven weeks or less, will end up having to have surgery to remove the extra tissue. As you go further along in the pregnancy, that failure rate increases. So that by the time you're at 13 weeks, okay, just a month and a half later, you've got a one out of three chance of needing surgery to complete it. But why is that important? Well, right now, Mifeprex is being given over the internet. It's being given without any kind of physical exam. There is no way in creation that you can give a woman adequate informed consent as to what her risks are, unless you know exactly how far along she is. So when we deal in medicine with any procedure, anything requires patient-specific informed consent. So these women are not even getting normal informed consent, but it gets worse. <laughs> so one out of 50 pregnancies in the United States are implanted outside of the womb. They're called ectopic pregnancies. Mifeprex does not treat ectopic pregnancies. It doesn't cause the, uh, the baby to die. So the symptoms of a Mifeprex abortion, which are pain and bleeding, are exactly the same symptoms as a rupturing ectopic pregnancy. Women die from rupturing ectopic pregnancies. We're talking one out of 50 women in the U.S. who is at risk. And if you don't do an ultrasound, you can't know where that baby is implanted. So we have women that are taking mifeprex that have ectopic pregnancies, and they are at high risk of dying because when they call with their complication, the person on the other end of the line says, well, honey, you know, take Tylenol, lay down, which is having a normal pain and bleeding. And their pregnancy is ruptured. Mm -hmm. They're bleeding internally. But that's not even... The worst of it, it gets worse. So there, in women who have a blood type called Rh negative, like O negative or B negative, those women have to have a uh, a medicine given to them at the time they separate from their baby, whether it's abortion, whether it's miscarriage, whether it's delivery. That medicine is called Rogam, and Rogam prevents their body from forming an immune response to the next pregnancy. 
if they don't have Rogan, they have a high chance of losing the next baby because their body has what's called isoimmunization. They, they, their body reacts to the next baby. So we are not only hurting women now, putting them at risk, not giving them informed consent. We're also setting them up for future baby losses of their, of their children that they do want. And we're not screening for coercion. Because when you see a woman over a laptop, you have no idea who is standing behind that laptop and giving her signals. So we are we are missing coercion, we're missing trafficking. This is just obscene to this is not good medical care for women. Now we just talked a moment ago about the fact that data around these kind of harms is not being collected. And you've just described how the misuse of mifepristone and chemical abortion drugs, the, the cocktail, uh, can even lead to someone's death. Is that something, because we have no data, that you're just, this is conjecture on your part, this is something that can happen? Or is there proof that these things have happened? There is proof that these, these things have happened. There have been deaths reported to the FDA. And I was part of a team which looked at uh, 5,000 pages of FDA documents, which we got down to 3,190-some adverse events that were reported to the FDA, and we published this information, and that included deaths, and deaths from massive infection, deaths from hemorrhage, from ruptured ectopic pregnancies, deaths from, uh, from suicide. Why is that a problem? Abortion does lead to and adverse mental health outcomes for women. And the mifeprex abortion is different than surgical abortion in that now the woman sees the baby she delivers. So she is looking and it's not a blob of tissue. She was lied to. This is not a blob of tissue. And the reality of seeing the baby, that's, that's actually pretty traumatic. We also know that of those deaths, there were also thousands of women who had near deaths. And the only reason they weren't dead was because they were able to access the emergency room quickly enough. There were women who lost their entire blood volume because that's how quickly and how rapidly the hemorrhage happens. There are women who had hysterectomies who, who were in the ICU for, for massive infection. And there were thousands of them. So if you look in our paper, you will see, and this is all from publicly available information. But what's worse, is our team also took a publication from Planned Parenthood. Okay, so they Planned Parenthood published their results. And we compared the adverse events in that paper to the adverse events that the FDA released. And the adverse events in the Planned Parenthood paper, who does only 37%, they do only a third of the abortions in the country. The adverse events in the Planned Parenthood paper were much larger than the adverse events reported on the FDA website. Now, what happened? Did Planned Parenthood not report the adverse events? Did FDA just decide not to make them public? I mean, this is this is data suppression. And you, if you don't have good data, you don't make good policy decisions. And what we've documented is there is not good data. But even with the data that we have, we're seeing women hurt, deaths and near deaths, which are completely avoidable. You mentioned the fact that the 
stage of the pregnancy can greatly impact the risk of this chemical abortion drug process. I also know that uh, post Dobbs, we're seeing this in, in some states, this prioritization of chemical abortions because states where surgical abortion is not legal, the, the workaround is let's just send it through the mail, prescribe over the internet, these chemical abortion drugs to women who can get their abortion remotely early in pregnancy because they don't have abortion providers in their state. Do in in that because of the distance between the the woman or the girl taking the drug and the doctor that increases the risks to her. Is there data that tells us what percentage of these chemical abortion pills and chemical abortions are happening remotely without having any consultation actually with a doctor? Well, there's no tracking that I know of. So you would have to go back to the people who are selling the drug. But the bigger issue, and I want to unpack what you just said, the bigger issue is these drugs are being given to women with no medical supervision so that when they start the hemorrhage and they have an infection, where are they going to go? What we found in reviewing the adverse event reports, like I said, is we found, I think it was around 24 deaths. What we also found was thousands of near deaths. If you give these drugs to women in a situation where they can't access emergency transfusions, where they don't have a gynecologist that can remove the tissue or treat their sepsis, those near deaths are gonna turn into deaths. And this is completely, completely irresponsible. So we have no way of tracking the number of women who are exposed right now. What we can track is women who die and, and then what the abortion industry is doing to make this even worse is they are telling women who come into the emergency room, don't tell me how to mifepristone abortion. Say you're miscarrying. They are telling women to falsify medical information. And I want to remind everybody that in a state where abortion is illegal, mifeprex abortion is illegal. It's still illegal. So it's it's not like, well, surgical abortion is illegal and mifeprex abortion is okay. They're illegal. Yeah. Well, and it is still illegal, of course. The challenge is the enforceability of that because we don't always know what's being sent through the mail, right? But. Uh, to add on to the the challenges that you've described here, when we layer on top of that the fact that I don't know if it's uh, it somewhere less than twenty states don't require parental notification for abortion, right? So you can be dealing with a 13, 14, 15 year old who could then go on the internet, get this drug. Not only is the doctor hundreds, potentially thousands of miles away who sends it to them, the parents have no awareness that this is happening. If the 13, 14, 15-year-old gave bad information when getting the chemical abortion drug, and in fact, her pregnancy is much more advanced than she said, either because she lied or because she's a child and she doesn't know what she's talking about, the data that you showed there, one of three of those cases require a surgical intervention then to end, to, to remove the, the baby after it has been chemically killed. But mom and dad have no idea that this is happening. Obviously, the girl doesn't want to tell mom and dad. That creates a whole different set of complications that for children make the risk even higher. Is that fair? Yeah, 
that's terribly dangerous. And who knows whether or not it's actually the girl ordering the drugs. So she may be sitting in front of a camera and her abuser, her sex trafficker, may be on the other side getting the drugs. So it's a it's a way of enabling abusers and sex traffickers. And actually these drugs have been accessed by disgruntled boyfriends, disgruntled girlfriends. And there's recently a case of a woman who was in a telemedicine visit, no physical exam. She told the telemedicine uh, provider, I don't even know if it was a physician, and she was six weeks along and she delivered a 32 week baby into the toilet who drowned. I mean, this is the kind of thing that happens when you willy nilly allow this kind of drug trafficking, and I would call it drug trafficking, to, and especially for children, especially for women that are most vulnerable. There's no way of screening for this. Now, Eric, I want to bring you back in uh, to this because uh, Judge Kazmarek uh, recently ruled that the approval process for this drug uh, was, in fact, illegal. Uh, Dr. Harrison has done a good job establishing kind of the risks associated uh, with these drugs. And of course, lots of pharmaceuticals have risks. Every time they advertise them on TV, we're, we see this long list of things somebody reads very quickly through of all the things terrible that could happen to you if you take this drug, right? So it's not a totally unique situation that a drug that has been approved, that's on the market, that people buy, has risks associated with it, presumably they decide that the risk or that the the benefit of the drug potentially outweighs the potential risks. But what was the basis of Judge Kazmierk's decision that in fact the approval process was illegal? Well, there were two reasons for why the approval was unlawful. First, the the FDA used its fast track approval process to jam mifepristone into its approval. But to do that, the FDA had to characterize pregnancy as an illness and then also justify the drug by saying it provides a meaningful therapeutic benefit. I think we can all agree that neither of those are actually true, but that's how the FDA views pregnancy these days. They do actually believe that pregnancy is an illness, but that's simply not the case. It's not the textbook definition, it falls well with it outside the scope of that regulation that allows for fast-track drug approval, and the court agreed with us in that. And secondarily, the FDA's clinical trials upon which they relied for approving these drugs all included basic safety protocols, in particular an ultrasound, before a woman would have a chemical abortion. But the approved regimen in 2000 never had an ultrasound. The FDA simply lacked any evidence to show that the approved regimen was safe for use uh, for, for women and girls. And that's simply against the law. When Congress delegated authority to the FDA to serve as the nation's drug gatekeeper, it told the FDA how to review and approve new drugs for safety and effectiveness. And in particular, it says you have to review the approved regimen under the labeling as directed. Because the equivalent is you can say, take, a, take this aspirin every four hours, but the FDA is like, oh, we actually never studied whether it's safe for every four hours. We only study if it's, it's safe for 24 hours, but we assume every four hours is fine. That's simply reckless and unlawful. So that's again, why the court agreed with us that the 2000 approval for this, these drugs uh, should be uh, struck down and halted. Well, that was at the trial court level. And we know that uh, this has been reviewed and modified a couple times since then uh, in a very short period of time. Eric, if you could give us an update. What did the Fifth Circuit say in response to Judge Kazmierich's decision? I understand that the Supreme Court has already weighed in on a limited way. Give us the update. 
Yeah, so in the district court, we won on everything with, with regards to the 2000 approval and every other action the FDA took to uh, uh, deregulate uh, chemical abortion drugs. What the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals did was a little different. They said, well, we're not sure if you can go back 22 years all the way to the 2000 approval. Uh, but everything from 2016 and beyond that the Obama administration did and the Biden administration did to make these drugs more available in an unlawful, reckless manner, that still stands. But the, the Fifth Circuit did appreciate and acknowledge that the 2000 approval was illegal. It may not be timely to challenge the 2000 approval, but in 2019, the FDA approved the generic version of Mifepristone by GenBioPro, and they said that challenge and that uh, halting of their approval was perfectly within the statute of limitations, and they should no longer make these drugs if this court's order goes into effect. So it was a very big victory because GenBioPro argues that they have two-thirds of the market. Um, and again, it was based on an unlawful approval. Uh, what the Supreme Court did just this last week was essentially say, Let's hit the pause button and everything. Maybe we were winning too fast, too quickly, who knows? But we won at the district court, we won at the Fifth Circuit, and then maybe the Supreme Court saw without, a, they didn't give a reason for why they, they agreed with the, the government here to hit the pause button on our victories. But a lot of people are speculating, but the immediate sense is we were winning and it was a, you know, it's a, it's a disruptive lawsuit in the sense that this drug has been in the marketplace for 22 years. Uh, because the stonewalling of the FDA prevented us from going to court earlier, but the court may have just viewed this as said, let's hit the pause button, let's take this through its normal course, and the Fifth Circuit has this already expedited, and we're going to be in court in New Orleans on May 17th, so we're going to be right back in this court, and it's going to go right back to the Supreme Court on the full merits briefing. So again, we, ha we were disappointed in the Supreme Court's interjection here to hit the pause button, but we're not going to be deterred or dismayed because we are very confident in the facts and the law in our case. Two courts have agreed with us. And now we're happy to again present the merits of our case in a normal fashion that will eventually may go to the Supreme Court. We don't think it needs to go to the Supreme Court, of course, because what the FDA did here was so egregious and so unlawful. It doesn't raise any constitutional issues here because, frankly, that, this is something for the lower courts to resolve and keep it there. But we'll see what happens in the future. So as we are recording here the last week of April, the nothing has changed functionally as to the availability of mifepristone. It is now just as available uh, today as it was a month ago. Is that true? That, that is correct. As of today or as of this month, that's going to be the case. And that's going to be the case, unfortunately, for the indefinite future, unless FDA does something different, because the Supreme Court hit the pause button until it decides whether to take this case up again on its full merits. And that could be months away. And if they do take it up, it could be a year away. So nothing's going to happen in the short term uh, uh, with regards to the availability of these drugs. And Dr. Harrison, you might be the best one to answer this question. Is this, is this a case of whack-a-mole where if you prevail in proving that mifepristone was approved inappropriately, they're just going to come out with something else. They're just going to rebrand it and just run the gauntlet. So we're just kind of delaying the inevitable when they get something else through this process, or can you just get rid of this? Well, I'll tell you, I can't, that's kind of a legal question, which I can't answer, but I can tell you that as long as mifepristone is willy nilly on the market, American women are at risk. This is a dangerous drug. 
Eric, then if this is a legal question, maybe I'll let you answer that. Do you, do you have a response to whether this is something where you're, you know, we're, we're fighting an abortion industry, which is trying to make it as common as possible. And this is something of a technicality where we might be right and we can prove it, but ultimately they're going to just rerun it through the process and jump through the correct hoops. Well, we, we take this one step out of the time, but let's say we ultimately prevail and this drug is taken off the market. What we're asking the courts to do, especially the district court, is issue an order that will bind the FDA from any further or future approval of a chemical abortion drug that makes sure that the FDA actually approves the drug that's under the approved regimen. And that's important because in their 22-year history of this drug, they don't even have a single study to show the safety and effectiveness of this drug under the approved regimen. One could speculate because if they actually ran that, the numbers would look pretty bad for them. So as, if they try to go back to the drawing board and try to rush this, because they are going to be relentless and they're not going to be deterred themselves, even if we prevail, they will still have to follow the law or like finally follow the law. And I'm not sure the FDA could justify an approval under that the law. What kind of response are you getting from the Biden administration on this? And is it, the, and, and maybe I'll, before I even let you answer that question, Who's defending this? Is it the Biden administration? Is the abortion industry itself getting involved? Who's making the arguments on the other side? Well, it's both. The Biden administration is very involved. You've seen the president and the vice president talk about it in, in addition to the attorney general. And they're all in on chemical abortion, especially after the Dobbs decision, because states, for example, such as Texas or Oklahoma, want to have their abortion restrictions or prohibitions set in place. But the Biden administration has been openly in saying, no, we, we're OK with California mailing these drugs into your states to undermine any type of protections you have for women and girls and unborn life. So we can't fully achieve the promise of Dobbs until we scale back the mail order regime that the Biden administration has pushed. So they're very much involved. But yeah. again, the, the chemical drug manufacturer, Danko, doesn't necessarily trust the FDA to, to defend this drug fully. So they have intervened in this case as well. And they're a party defending as well. So it's definitely a two against one here. We have our clients and then we're up against the government and then big abortion and the, the industry such as Danko Laboratories, who's who's defending this as well. Yeah. Well, we won those fights before. So, uh, and we also have a very good ally on our side uh, called the truth that sometimes you know, we can rely on and, and does prevail. Dr. Harrison, to that point, you've done a good job today kind of laying out the risks of Mifepristone in ways that normal people uh, like me can understand. Presumably, you have presented those same arguments and same facts to people on the other side uh, who are part of the abortion industry. When they when they see that information or hear that information, do they disagree with you? Do they challenge that what you've said is true? Or do they say, well, yeah, but it's just the cost of doing business and it's worse if we don't have abortion readily available? That's a good question. What I've found is that when the abortion industry and abortion supporters face the truth about the reality, what they do is turn around and attack the messenger. Because it's easier to cancel someone, it's easier to attack someone than to deal with, this is the truth. And they, uh, it, it, they, <laughs> physicians do need to have time to think through this issue and they have been uh, fed a bunch of um, literally misinformation about what abortion is and what chemical abortion is and what it does. And, and what you find is, is 
those physicians who participate in performing abortions become pretty callous to the human being in the womb. So it uh, it's an issue of not really perceiving the human being in the womb and being so obsessed with getting rid of pregnancy that they actually are not taking into account what happens to the woman that this is being foisted on. There's a theme here, I think, both from what we started this conversation with the FDA and the lack of reporting requirements, and then the individuals that you have these discussions with. There's this temptation in the human heart to not want to know certain things if we're afraid that the facts that we might learn will challenge what we want to do, right? And that is a an innately human thing. We're engaging it here in this process of the, the abortion debate. Uh, we see it in court. We see it certainly with politicians. You see it with medical professionals there who are like, my starting assumption is abortion is good. I don't want information that's going to challenge that starting assumption. It's why it's really the formation of a worldview for a lot of people. And I think, you know, those of us, you know, even if we're pro-life, we just need to allow this example um, to force us to ask ourselves, what information are we trying to stay away from? Because we don't want to know, because it might force us to live differently, to think differently uh, than, than we are desiring to. I have to share an experience I had at a conference, a medical conference. Um, one of the organizers of the conference came up to thank all the, all the organizations that were exhibiting. So I asked him, I said, are you aware of American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs? And he said, um, no. I said, would you like to learn more? And he said, no. Because the moment I learn more, I'm going to have to make a decision that I don't want to make. And he walked away. So I think you put, you hit the nail on the head. It will cause people to live differently and think differently if they consider the human being in the womb. And if they really look at the effects of abortion on women, they're hurting women. And, uh, and that's a fact. And sooner or later, they'll have to face it. Yeah. That's a remarkable amount of honesty that that man is demonstrating because most of us aren't willing to just say, I don't want to know because I don't want to do anything differently, but that is the condition of the human heart in, in so many ways. Um, but Eric and Dr. Harrison, you guys are both Eric. Do you have any, any final words here as we wrap up this conversation? I just say, keep hoping and praying for the outcome of this case. This is, we have a long way to go to our ultimate victory, but we're very confident in our case. And again, this is this case is always about protecting women and girls from dangerous drugs, yeah. but it really also focuses on unlawful agency actions here because we, it is the court's obligation to hold these unlawful agencies, such as the FDA, accountable for failing to follow the law because there are dangerous and detrimental effects when they fail to do so. Yeah. And Eric, I will say, I know a lot of people there, their eyes glaze over when they hear lawyers start talking about unlawful agency actions. But one of the things I hope happens today is that they see the connection between those of you who engage in that space, who really know the law and its implications and how that applies in very practical ways to the safety of women and girls' lives and the health of families and those things. So we are grateful that you read those codes, that you know 
no unlawful agency actions. We will pray for you. And we, we're just grateful for your courage and your tenacity in making this stuff happen because you and, and all of uh, your colleagues at ADF are such a blessing to our country. And you have won so much uh, for the unborn, uh, for religious freedom already. And we are just uh, grateful that God will continue to bless uh, those efforts. So thank you for what you do. Thank you very much. Really yeah. appreciate it. And, and Dr. Harrison, I'll say the same thing for you as well, because you you have to when when you are the client, when you file these lawsuits and you're out public on these things, uh, you take uh, the the backlash for this. And if if you were not willing to just endure what I know comes your direction, a lot of people would suffer for it. So on behalf of uh, all Americans who care about this issue, thank you as well for your courage and example here. Well, thank you for bringing us on. No, we're, I'm happy to talk about it, and I know that there's going to be more to talk about in the future. We're praying for you. We're standing with you. We're grateful for, for all that you are doing uh, for the unborn and for America, and we are also thankful for your time today. Thank you. And thank you for those of you who have been part of this conversation. We're thrilled that you are with us. The conversation really is for you. If you've enjoyed it, if you've learned something, share it with your friend and go ahead and wherever you get this podcast, give us a five-star review because that helps us get out to other people as well. God bless you. We'll talk to you next time here on Outstanding. Outstanding is a production of The Washington Stand, where you can find news and commentary from a biblical worldview.